Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 15, where we're going to finish the chapter, finish the parable of the prodigal son, and finish the month. I don't know if we're going to finish anything else, but that's plenty. When we moved into our house about eight years ago, there was a bunch of trees that were planted in a little tiny planter next to the driveway, and they had gotten very large, and so we had cut them down and dug them up. And the roots had gone under our driveway, and uh, there they had kind of buckled the surface, and so the driveway was all cracked and lumpy and... So we had that broken up and taken away. And so then I was trained to grade the driveway and I ran into this root there that was, it was black and dirty. It was about two inches in diameter and I kept digging it and pulling on it and digging and it was about 20 feet long. And finally I got it pulled out. It was this huge long root. And at that time, one of my sons came around the corner and said, dad, I think that's the root of bitterness. And you know what? It was, it was a good picture. Something long and black and dirty and hard to remove. That's what bitterness is like. It's uh, very difficult once you grow bitter to try and uh, get over that. That phrase, root of bitterness, comes from Hebrews twelve fifteen through 17, where the author of Hebrews says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Esau, of his own accord, despised his birthright for a single bowl of soup. Later, when it was time to collect on the rights of the firstborn, he didn't get them. Because he had despised his own birthright. And so he grew bitter because he couldn't have what he earlier rejected. And not only did he grow bitter, he grew bitter towards his brother and blamed his brother for the sin he had committed. Bitterness is uh, a dark compound of jealousy and anger and revenge and an unforgiving heart. And if you don't deal with it in your life, it it, it will poison you. It will poison your life. Dale Carnegie once said, quote, wouldn't our enemies rub their hands with glee if they knew that our hate for them was exhausting us, making us tired and nervous, ruining our looks, giving us heart trouble and probably shortening our lives, end quote. And so it is. We can just be so consumed that with our own angry bitterness that it just really ruins our life. It it shortens it. This morning we come to the, the last part of the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus is addressing this problem in the near context in verses 1 and 2 where the Pharisees and scribes grumbled because Jesus was receiving these sinners who were repenting and believing in him. And of course, uh, if you know anything about Jesus' parables, he always saves the punchline for the end. That's when he drops the hammer. So uh, this is where we get the blow. Um, 
of the of the parable. Well, you've learned a lot of great things from the earlier part, but now we're we're getting the blow of the main thrust directed at those who find it difficult or impossible to rejoice when sinners come to repentance. Yet in an unexpected turn of events, as we work our way towards the end of the parable of the prodigal son, it becomes obvious that the parable is about the parable of the prodigal sons. There's two of them. One of them is openly rebellious. The other is secretly rebellious. But his rebellion comes out at the end. He is in equal need of repentance, equal need of grace, and equal need of forgiveness from the Father. Now, in the parable, Jesus has purposely portrayed the prodigal in just the most disgusting and offensive ways so that the Pharisees and scribes would just cringe just as Jesus told what he did. It would just eek them and offend them and make them despise him. The older brother represents the scribes and Pharisees and anyone who really can't rejoice over a sinner when they repent. And, you know, when they are hearing Jesus tell this story, they're blind to its meaning. They think the older brother is the hero of the story. Because they're going, yeah, that's right. I mean, when the older brother is described, they're going, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They think he's the good guy. They think the prodigal should have been utterly rejected, that he shouldn't have been received, and especially not received back with rejoicing and a huge celebration. And that's why the meaning of this parable probably rolled off of them like water off a duck's back and they just probably didn't get it at all because they couldn't see their sin and they didn't see their need for repentance and therefore they didn't understand grace the parable makes no sense to them they thought they had earned the right to enter the kingdom of god They were good. They were righteous. They were doing what was right. And so because they had done what was right, they thought I'm going in. They're just like the older brother. I have never disobeyed you. I have done what's right. And so grace to them made no sense because they didn't see themselves in need of any. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke 10? Verses 21 and 22, Luke writes, at that time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. That is an incredible passage. I think I preached eight sermons on that one. That, that is amazing. 
Jesus rejoices now? Are you saying Jesus is rejoicing that he and the Father are keeping truth from people so they won't be saved? That's exactly right. It's like, how could that be? How could that be? You see, when Jesus first came out in his ministry, he didn't speak in parables. He was here on earth and he was telling everybody the truth plainly over and over again. Not only was he telling the truth, he was doing divine miracles. So they had clear, plain teaching accompanied by divine miracles. And they rejected it and rejected it and rejected it and rejected it and rejected it until Jesus said, okay. As a form of judgment, I am now keeping the truth from you. You know, the disciples wondered why he did this. I mean, they they couldn't understand. They're thinking, Lord, you know, I mean, you're the savior. You're here to do all this great teaching. I mean, you got great things to say. What is What is the deal with all the parables, all the riddles? You know, I mean, why are, why are you doing that? that? That just doesn't seem right. I mean, why don't just tell them, you know, every time you say something, we have to like pull you aside and say, so what does that mean? And in Matthew 13, 11 through 16, Jesus replies to their question of why he teaches in parables with these words to you. It has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been granted. For whoever has to him more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have even what he shall have will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive for the heart of this people has become dull with their ears. They scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return. And I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see in your ears because they hear. So earlier in his ministry, he just taught plainly, but as they kept rejecting the truth and saying, you're of Satan, you do miracles of the power of Beelzebub. You have a demon. Jesus then brought judgment upon them. And that judgment was to keep the very truth they needed to escape the judgment of hell. I mean, even in the face of divine miracles over and over again, they watched him do divine. You know, we have seen it where Jesus had the man in the pile and said, your sins are forgiven. And, and they said, you can't do that. Only God can do that. And he goes, okay, well, then I'll show you what's easier to say. Your sins are forgiven or take up your pallet and walk. And they're thinking, well, if you say your sins are forgiven, we can't prove that. And only God can do that. But then again, only God could heal the guy. Jesus says, so that you will know that the son of man has the authority to forgive sins. I.e., I am God. Take up your pallet and walk. Right in front of their face. We've seen this over and over again. He does it in front of their face. Well, when you have that kind of revelation, when you have that clear of a picture and you reject the truth and reject the truth and reject the truth, you get parables. 
In Mark chapter 4, verse 33, it says, With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it, and he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his disciples. Why? Because they didn't get it either. You know? I mean, if you've studied the parables, I mean, we thank God for the times Jesus gave an interpretation. They kept pulling him aside saying, So so what was that one now? What did that mean? I mean, they weren't getting it either. They were tricky. There were riddles. After the parable of the good shepherd in John 10, you know, the the parable of the good shepherd to us, it's just a no brainer. You know, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And and we kind of look at that and go, no brainer. You know, that's that's no duh. Uh, Obviously, it's talking about Jesus is the good shepherd. He dies on the cross so he can save his sheep. That is believers. What's so hard about that? But listen to what John says right after that is given. This is what we read in John 10, 6. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were, which he had been saying to them. It's like, who is that great shepherd? What is this whole laying down his life for the sheep business? They just just didn't work for him. They couldn't figure it out. They're just like, man, I just don't know. Why do I bring this up? Because believe me, the scribes and Pharisees, as they're listening to the parable of the prodigal son, they have no clue what's going on. They're thinking the older brother's the good guy. It's like, why is the father being so foolish? He should have rejected the prodigal. And I think they realize that Jesus is comparing them to the older brother. I think they're probably getting that, but they don't get that he's not right with God because they're just like him and they're blinded to their sin. So let's look at the text and follow as I read Luke 15, 25 through 32. Luke 15, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of his servants and began inquiring what these things could be. He said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, For so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. Well, we started looking at the eight ungodly attitudes displayed by the older brother. We got through four of them. We're going to finish the last four this morning so you can know how not to respond when a sinner comes to repentance. We already looked at these first four. Let me just survey them quickly. One was don't have an angry, bitter, unforgiving heart. The the older brother obviously is unwilling to forgive his younger brother. He is angry. He is fuming. Um, he just has this accumulating rage towards him. 
He despises him so much. And again, well, I don't know. I don't understand that. You will after this morning. Secondly, don't be self-righteous. When he speaks to his father, I have never disobeyed a single command of yours. Like, really? He's self-righteous. He has a bad case of self-righteousness. He's perfect. Third, don't be jealous. He was jealous because he had never had a celebration for him and he had done what was right. But now that this wayward brother of his has sinned so greatly, there's a celebration and at great expense. He hasn't even got a young goat, let alone a fatted calf. He's jealous of the attention and the celebration that was given to his brother that he couldn't receive for Don't be hateful or unloving. The older son's comments and actions towards his brother and father reveal a very hateful and unloving heart. Every Christian has these kinds of sins in their life. I mean, we can't fool ourselves and go, man, I'm glad I'm not the older brother. Because if you say that, you are like him. I mean, we all see as we're going through here. Ow. I mean, when I was studying this, this is a painful. These texts like this are painful. I mean, you get it for an hour. I got to get it for a long time during the week. I keep seeing myself. You know, there's a little secret. A lot of people go, man. And when you say some things are so convicting, you know how, how I do that? I just look at my own life and just turn it into a general statement. And then you're all convicted going, how did he know? <laughs> it's like, well, because I just looked at my own life. And then said, you know, for those of you who are like this, and I'm just describing myself to you. So we're all getting confronted here. This is this is the hammer. So now we get to the fifth attitude, ungodly attitude that the older brother displays. Look at verse 30 and notice that the prodigal says, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, now just stop there. Did you notice the phrase devoured your wealth with prostitutes? This whole devouring, we we would say gobble up. He has gobbled up your wealth. The Greek literally reads gobbled down, which is really more accurate because when you eat something, it goes down your esophagus into your stomach. And notice he says your wealth. He won't even acknowledge that what the prodigal spent was his wealth given to him by the father. He's bitter about that because he's greedy for it. The prodigal's actions were so shameful, the brother won't even accept or at least acknowledge that the father actually did give him his inheritance early and that he was able to squander a portion of it. He still sees it as the father's because if it was the father's, he'd have a chance of getting some of it after his father died. Now, I explained this before, but it's worth repeating. The land inheritance was something that could be divided up among sons while the father was living. So let's just say that, you know, you were a father and you had three sons and you had a large piece of property. You could take the oldest, give him two thirds and then divide up what was less to the other two sons and say, these are the boundaries of the property that you would have. And this would be fine. Um, you would understand why they would do that. The reason they would do that is because the sons are young and they're they, that at that age, they're able to do a lot of hard work. And so they could then begin to manage and take care of their own portion. However, 
all the proceeds from the land would go to the father. Any wealth that was earned from the land while the father was alive would go to him. And this is called usufruct. You think, well, what is that? The father retained the usufructory right. That's a good term, isn't it? I like that. Let me just give you an example. There was a time when we owned the property all the way out to Alameda. But who would ever want that property? (laughs) You know, at that time, the church was small. And they think, you know, we've got this gigantic piece of property here. I mean, we're never going to use that thing. So they decided to sell it. But one of the wise things they did is they retained the usufructory rights to park there. It is our right to always park on the other side of that wall. We retained that by right of usufruct. So this is how it was. The father would receive all of the wealth from his land, though he had portioned it out already to the sons. The sons then, if they were wise, would realize the more valuable I make my piece of land, even while my father is alive, the more it will make me when he dies because I'll receive it all. So I'm getting to work and maintaining my piece of land. Now think of this, though. The younger son asked for his inheritance early, and though the land is divided up, he doesn't get any cash from it. All he wants is the cash, so he sells everything he can, gets all the liquid assets, and leaves the country, abandoning his land inheritance, which to the Jews was, you know, everything. Land was everything. So what he did was extremely wicked. Now, He never said, I'm going to be back in a year, two years. He left and they thought they'd probably never see him again because he violated the law of Moses and really should have been stoned to death. And so the whole idea of him returning was really not an option. So who would take care of his portion? Who would receive his portion after the father died? The older brother. So the older brother then realized my brother's gone. I get his third. So he then begins to not only work his land, but he works his brother's land, keeping the irrigation ditches clean, trimming the vines, tending to the orchards, the sheep or whatever, you know, whatever needs to be done. He's keeping the land so that it is prosperous so that when his father dies, he gets it all. Now, imagine you are the older brother. You get two-thirds of that land. Your brother leaves. He walks away. You're working hard to maintain all of the property. And let me ask you, do you get any benefit from the wealth that the prodigal squandered in the other country? No. No, you don't get any benefit from that. You can't even invest that in the land because he's squandered it. But now the prodigal is back. And what is the father doing? He's gone to great expense to welcome him home. The money the father is spending on the prodigal, if he hadn't come back, would have gone to you. Not only that, now that he returned, he's going to get his third that you've been maintaining. That you've been working hard to invest in. To 
keep it prosperous for your brother. Now you can see how this would be very eking. As you begin to realize that you have been slaving and making the piece of property prosperous so that the prodigal who squandered all of his liquid assets could come back and reap the benefits from what you did. And what's his problem? It's greed. He is more concerned about the cash and the land than he is about his brother's soul. That's his problem. Greed has consumed him. And now that the prodigal has returned, he knows he's receiving a huge financial blow. And this is why he speaks so aggressively and why he's so fuming with anger. And this is what we see in the text and this is what we see in the world. And this is what we see in many cases in the church. People who are so caught up in the world, so caught up in their self, so caught up in the preservation of their own pleasure, their own stuff, their own rights that they could care less that people perish in hell as long as they can have their comfort. This is a sign of the last times. Paul talks about it in second Timothy chapter three. Let me just read this to you. It's like Paul just scanned the CNN website and watched the news and surfed the net and, you know, looked to see what people were being entertained by in our society. And he writes this. Now, this is 2000 years ago, 2000 years ago, Paul speaking of the last days right before the second coming. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without Self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. I mean, is that it today or what? That is exactly what we're seeing. The 10th commandment is you shall not covet. Another way of saying, don't be greedy. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. In Romans 1, 29, it says that those will not acknowledge those who do not acknowledge God are filled with greed. In Ephesians 5, 3, Paul writes, but immorality and impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. In Colossians 3, 5, it says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. We don't even want it in the church. We don't even want a hint of it in the church. No greed, no covetousness. None. 
Remember, we learned in the previous chapter in Luke 14, 33, that Jesus said, so then none of you who can be my disciple, who does not give up all his possessions. And thinking, Man, that's pretty extreme. Remember, we talked about that. It doesn't mean God wants you to take a vow of poverty, poverty necessarily. It doesn't mean you can't be wealthy and be a godly Christian. It does mean this. Now, when you come to Christ, you lay everything at God's disposal. Everything you realize that everything you have has been given to you by God. And you say, Lord, if you want this and I feel like you want this from me, I'm willing to give it. I'm willing to obey you and give all I have to you for your cause, for your purpose and for your glory. We talked about those people in Hebrews chapter sin who rejoiced when all their houses were seized. Why? Because they had a better hope. They said, okay, take it, take all my possessions, take everything I own. I know the Lord. Jesus says, you don't have that attitude. You can't be a Christian. You can't be my disciple. You got to be able to give it all. And yet in this day and age, there is so much pressure to love the world and the things of the world that a lot of Christians, we just, we it's hard to even imagine. We just find ourselves sometimes responding like the world, but we're not to be like the world in that way. And so beware of greed. Six, don't despise grace. We noticed last week in verse 29, the older brother was jealous of the attention and honor being given to his brother. And you know why he was jealous he he actually thought that the father was having a celebration because of the rebellion of the prodigal. He, he had no clue. He's so blind to grace. He doesn't, he doesn't have any idea. I mean, look at what he says in verse 30. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. In other words, he has sinned. He has rebelled. And now you're celebrating his rebellion. Yeah, he's so blind. The older brother is so blind. He doesn't realize the father is celebrating the prodigal's repentance from sin and his return home. Not that he squandered his wealth on prostitutes and sinful living. That's not why the father is celebrating, but that's all. That's all the older son can see. He has shamed you. He has sinned in another country. He has come back and now you're celebrating what he has done. And why does he think that? Because he can't see grace. Grace doesn't make sense to him. Everybody knows that when you're a good Christian, you do what's right. You try to have your good deeds that way your bad deeds. And, and if they get, you know, enough on the good side and the, 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 it, it tilts to that side of the though, though, yes, you do have some bad deeds. Your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. You're going to get into heaven because you will have done enough good deeds. And so the scribes and the Pharisees and the older brother saw themselves as self-righteous. They were doing good deeds there. Of course, they're going to get into heaven. But this this other guy is taking cuts. That's how they saw it. 
you know how it is. You're in a line at some fast food restaurant and you're there because you want some fast food. And all of a sudden there's this, you know, kid standing in the front of the line. And then in comes his family of 12. They go, oh, yeah, hey, now kind of get in there. Pretty soon you're ratcheted back almost out the door. Hey, 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 what are you doing? You're taking cuts. And that's exactly how the scribes and the Pharisees saw these sinners who were coming to repentance. It's like, wait a second. We've been studying the law of Moses, man. We've been jotting, dotting every I and crossing every T and doing everything according to the law of Moses. And you come in after sinning against God for so long, you're just going to like go into the kingdom and sit with us at the table. You've got to be kidding me that they can't handle it. They can't handle it. It's like, whoa, it's exactly what we see the older brother doing, right? He can't handle it. Why? Because he doesn't understand grace. And he doesn't see that he himself is just as much a sinner as the prodigal. He's blind to it. And I keep in mind, at this point, he doesn't even know about the robe, the ring, and the sandals. <laughs> he only knows about the fatted calf. I mean, if the servant would have just added... Oh, and by the way, he's wearing dad's best robe. Dad gave him his signet ring and put sandals on his face to let it on his feet to let everybody know that he has been restored to the rights of all sonship. I mean, he probably would have had a brain aneurysm right there. He probably just would have so freaked out. He He's in a rage over the calf. And he has no idea these other things. He's he's furious he's lost money and now he despises the grace that is being given to the prodigal and this is a serious sin john three twenty seven says a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven you have what you have by the grace of god paul said to the corinthians in first corinthians 4 7 What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? James 1.17 reminds us every good thing and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Everything you have that's good, every single thing is a gift to you from God's grace. If you got what was fair, you'd be in the lake of fire right now. And so everything better than lake of fire is a gracious gift of God. That kind of changes our whole perspective. And grace is when you receive that which you do not earn and cannot deserve. It's grace. It's grace. Thomas Watson in his work, All Things for Good, said, quote, Surely there is not a greater sign of a man ripe for hell than this, not only to lack grace, but to hate it, end quote. Beware of despising grace, of looking and going, well, look at that person. That person just came off the street. That person was a robber. That person was immoral. That person was a, you know what that person is? 
just like you. You just haven't got a clue yet. Seven, don't disrespect your parents. We also learn from verse 30 that when the older brother, when he says, you know, look, and when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth of prospect, you killed the fatted cat. It's just inherent in these statements. It's just disdain for his father. Now, this is right after he has just said, I've never disobeyed a single command. So in saying this, he's not only lying. He's breaking the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. While he is saying, I've done everything right, he's committing two huge sins right there. What's interesting is when the older brother speaks, if you look in verses 28 through 30, which is where the older brother speaks, he never addresses his father as father. He just addresses him as you. I mean, he is hot. He's lost a lot of money, a lot of respect, and now he's going to lose more because this wayward brother, his father's son that he won't even acknowledge has come home. The same unforgiving, angry, greedy, self-righteous attitudes displayed towards the younger brother are now being displayed toward the father. It becomes obvious that he is just as wayward, if not more than the prodigal himself. God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel written on tablets of stone with his own finger. And the fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. In Leviticus 19.3, every one of you shall reverence his father and mother in the holiness code of Leviticus. In the blessings and cursing section of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses writes in Deuteronomy 27.16, Cursed is he who dishonors his father or mother. And all the people should say, Amen! You honor, you dishonor your father and mother, cursed. And we're going to praise God that it would be done, that we're going to say, let it be done that you be cursed if you don't honor your father and mother. I mean, that is serious. Jesus quotes that fifth commandment five times in the gospels. Paul states it to the church in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. But in spite of the clear teaching of the law, The older brother refuses to obey the fifth commandment. He despises his father because his father has extended grace. Now, if you're still living at home, I think the application of the fifth commandment is rather clear. You need to do what your parents tell you. How can you honor your father? Here's three easy ways. One, obey first time You were told to do something all the way and with a happy heart. That's how you honor your parents. Secondly, don't wait to be asked to do something you know your parents want you to keep doing. If your parents tell you when you get up in the morning, I want you to make your bed. I want you to pick up your dirty clothes and throw them in the hamper. Then get up in the morning, make your bed and take your dirty clothes and put them in the hamper. Every day. That's how you honor your parents. I know this probably sounds very troublesome to you. You're probably sitting there going, oh, Pastor Hughes, could you not say this with my mom and dad here? Now they're going to expect me to be this way. God expects you to be this way. 
I mean, if they want you to pick up your dirty clothes, pick up your dirty clothes. And third, if you want to honor your parents, go the extra mile. You know, I mean, think about it. Your parents have been feeding you all of your life. They have been clothing you and taking care of you while you're sick in the bathroom in the middle of the night. And they've sacrificed a good deal for you already. And believe me, you are getting the better end of the deal. (laughs) And so instead of, you know, slumping in front of the TV or the computer and just frivoling your time away, your mom's in there slaving, why don't you just get up and say, can I help you? Would you like me to vacuum the carpet or wash the windows or take out the trash or whatever and honor your father and mother? Now, when you move out, things get a little bit more complicated because then you're kind of your own person. You've got maybe your own family. You've got maybe your own wife and your kids, and you can't always do everything your parents wish that you could do for them. You you aren't going to move there, are you? That's a long ways away. And are you, you're coming over for Christmas, aren't you? I mean, we've all been there. And so you can still honor them. You can still write them and visit them and serve them when you can. When my mom was still alive. I would tell her, you know, she was very feeble. So I'd say, mom, just make up a list of things, you know, when I come to visit. And I'd come there to be this like gigantic list, you know, of honeydews that she'd have. And you know what? It was a joy to do those. Most of them were like change the light bulb on the porch, you know, a huge problem with somebody in my height that just had to go over there and, you know, (laughs) 10 seconds. She was only five two. So it was a big deal, but yeah, things like that, you know, um, just, just to serve your parents and to try to honor your parents as best you can. And honoring your parents even gets more complicated when you realize that honoring parents doesn't mean doing what they want you to do. It means doing what is best for them, like taking the car keys away from them. Seniors, listen up now. Um, (laughs) Sometimes it becomes apparent to everybody that, you know, mom or dad shouldn't be driving anymore. You know, I remember my mom pulling in one time and I noticed that kind of the underneath corner of her car was kind of crunched in a little bit. It was kind of weird. It was kind of like underneath. I said, mom, what happened to your car? She says, oh, I don't know. My dad says she came home with a huge chunk of sod hanging from it. (laughs) And I thought, (laughs) I thought, so mom, how did the sod get stuck under your car? And she said, oh, I don't know. That was scary. That's scary when you don't know how your car, you know, became a plow. And um, <laughs> and you just wonder, you know, what nice piece of landscaping around town has a big giant divot out of it. And she doesn't even know how it happened, you know. And uh, so, yeah, sometimes uh, you have to do what's right for them. Sometimes they can't take care of themselves. They can't live at home anymore. And they want to stay in their own home. They want to have their independence. And you know what? But sometimes you just have to say, no, I love you too much to endanger your life, to danger other people's lives. And we love you so much. We're going to do this. And usually they kick and scream and then they get over it. But yeah, honoring your parents is gets more difficult as they grow older sometimes. Well, there's a general principle here, though, that I think goes beyond just 
the, the parents. Obviously, he is despising his father, but he's also despising his brother. And really, it's just wrong to despise anybody. Um, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 18.10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And the little ones is a reference to believers. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my father who is in heaven. Why does he mention the angels here? Well, this text, you know, seems to be one of the clearer texts. It's really kind of the only text, but that, that might suggest that people have guardian angels. Right. Now, uh, it's just one text. It could also mean we know from like Hebrews one verse 14, where the author of Hebrews says, are they not all ministering spirits, speaking of angels sent to render service to the saints? So we know that all angels minister to the saints. So Jesus could just be saying that their angels, that is the angels who I have ministering to them in general continually behold the face of my father who is heaven. So why does he bring this up when he says, don't despise other believers? It's this. God is dispatching angels all the time to minister to believers. And when he dispatches angels to minister to believers, he does that to encourage them, edify them, help them in their walks with the Lord. You then come along and despise them. You're actually going against the will of God and the work of the angels to try to help them because you're doing the exact opposite. So Jesus says, remember those ministering spirits that are helping them try to walk in the Lord that are behold the face of God or to dispatch by him to help them. You're doing the exact opposite. You're fighting against them and God. So don't do it. And we need to be very careful of this, especially if you go to a church where you get good teaching. There's just something about having good teaching, good Sunday school classes, good Bible studies, discipleship groups that can make you extra vulnerable to despising other people because they don't know what you know. I've talked to a lot of people who have said things like, man, I was going to this church and I thought it was a pretty good church. And I thought I came over here and then I started getting teaching and I thought, whoa, where have I been? And my whole life just started changing. I started learning all this stuff. And I thought, man, where have I been? And then you started getting angry at those other people. You can be tempted to despise them because I entrusted my soul to the leaders of those other churches and they didn't take care of me. What is wrong with them? But you aren't supposed to despise them. You're going to be in heaven with them for all eternity. Instead, you should be thinking, how can I do something to help the situation rather than just like, oh, you know, what can I do to help the situation? And. One of the things you could do is pray for them, encourage them, you know, maybe do something, maybe save money and every year send the leadership of that church a good book on leadership. And every year they all get a new book and maybe after a while it'll start soaking in. Maybe if you have close relationships, just to humbly go to, you know, out to lunch with one and say, you know what, I've, I'm getting this, it's changing my life and. I just want you to know I'm praying for you. I'm trying to encourage you. Try to be part of the solution rather than just kind of like you didn't do what I wish you did. Therefore, I'm going to despise you when you have what you have by the grace of God. And because you have more, 
you should be more godly because to whom much is given much is what required. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had tons of knowledge about God, but they weren't practicing it. And you can have tons of knowledge about God. And instead of that knowledge making you more gracious and kind and, you know, more more of a person who displays the fruit of the spirit, it makes you more bitter, more condescending, more jealous, more censorious to the place where you really are no good to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And, you know, it may be true that 100% of everything that you felt about that last church was true. But listen, you need to be part of the solution and not despise your brothers. The privilege of sitting under good biblical teaching is not anything that you can say, well, because I sit under good teaching, I can despise other people. No, it holds you to the accountability, a higher level of accountability. And God expects you to use it with greater zeal to love others, not despise them. Eight, don't reject godly rebuke. Look at verse 31 where we're switching back now. The father now is talking. He has just been despised and insulted by his older son, just as the prodigal shamed him earlier in public and left to squander his wealth in another country. So now the older son is shaming him openly. But look at verse 31. The father again responds with grace. And he said to him, son, you've always been with me. All that is mine is yours. Is that kind? Is that gracious? Is that just godly? The father wasn't stingy. The father had allowed the older son to enjoy his wealth. And if the older son said, dad, could you, you mind if we kill a goat and have a celebration? He would say, sure. Uh, How about a fatted calf? Sure. How about two? Fine. No problem. We got him. Kill him. Eat him. Celebrate. The father had done no wrong to the older son. The older son was blinded by his own sin. And this was the perfect, perfect place. This was T-ball right now for the older son to respond with repentance for what he had just done and what he had been doing. The father, after he's just basically attacked where he says, look, and he just comes down and his father, the father just says, son, all that is mine is yours. And that should have humbled that older son. He should have repented of his sin and he should have confessed it. But instead, what does he do? He blame shifts. It was that brother and you, you, you. It was the serpent who deceived me. It was that woman It was my job. It was my husband. It was my wife. It was the pressures at work. It was a bad hair day. I had to despise grace because it wasn't fair. I mean, you know, we always have an excuse, right? We always have an excuse for not responding in the right way when we're self-righteous. When we're self-righteous and we're not humble. The father goes on to say in verse 32, 
But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and because to live and is lost and now been found. And the word had to, as the NASB and the New International Version have it, or fitting as the English Standard Version have it, is a strong word which means it was absolutely necessary that we celebrate. You have to do this when a sinner comes to repentance. There is no option. There must be rejoicing when sinners repent. J.C. Rao goes as far to say, quote, the person who can be absorbed in politics or sports or making money or farming and not in the conversion of souls is no true Christian, end quote. And look at the text and notice how the brother responds to this rebuke. Do you see it there? No, it's not there. Why? Why? Is it not there? Jesus ends the parable. Why do you think he does that? He gets to the perfect place. The prodigal is obviously a sinner. He's obviously repented. He's obviously come back. And that's all been done. I mean, he showed us how the shepherd rejoiced when he found the sheep. He showed how the woman rejoiced when he found the coin. Shows how the prodigal was received when he came back. And then he says, gracious words, extends grace to the older son and ends the parable. Why? Because all of us need to ask ourselves this. Are we going to respond in rep- humble repentance to the offer of God's grace or not? That's why he leaves it there because it's unfinished business for the rest of us. When Jesus shows the grace and kindness of the father, he ends the parable to the scribes and Pharisees who were then listening. The father is offering you everything. If you're willing to repent of your sins and receive me as your Lord and savior. You're going to have it or not. And that's the same thing God's saying to us today. You know, what's interesting is I was talking to, you know, I've been talking to people in the weeks and, and some people come up to me and go, man, I am the prodigal. You don't know how much I'm the prodigal. I am so prodigal like. I mean, you sh- I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian school. I knew all the truth. Went to a want all these verses in my head and I purposely rejected my parents. I went out and plunged myself into debt and into sin and did all this stuff. And then finally, by God's grace, I got a clue and I came back and now I'm growing the Lord and I am the prodigal. And I needed the grace of God. But you know what? I'm sure there's some other people here this morning who are like the older son. And just as the father went out and graciously met the prodigal, so he goes out and graciously meets the older son. And it doesn't matter if you are just a full-blown external rebel or you grew up in a Christian home, learned how to talk the talk and walk the walk, and you've done everything right and never fallen into any big sins, God still says, you are a prodigal too. On the inside. And I'm extending grace to you. If you're willing to admit. You are a rebel. And to receive the free gift of God. In Christ Jesus. That's the brilliant part about the parable. And he leaves it open there. So we can all look at our own hearts and say. Okay. Have I done this? Is this my life? 
You know, you may have grown up in the church and you may have been here for a long time and you may think that you're saved and you may realize right now, wow, no wonder why I felt like the older son last week and this week. Maybe you are just like him, self-righteous, blinded. Maybe you despise God's grace given to other more externally wicked people. But you need to realize everybody's wicked. Everybody's a sinner and everybody needs the grace of God. And if you're willing to have Christ to be your Lord and Savior, not just with profession, but trust your heart to him and acknowledge your sin to him, the father will extend grace to you and he will save you. This is the great ending of the parable of the prodigal sons. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness in giving us your word. Father, how powerful it is to realize that there are two prodigals in this text. The external prodigal and the internal prodigal. The one who plunged himself into clear acts of outward rebellion and the other one who doing all the right external things was rebelling on the inside. Father, I pray that if anybody fits into those two categories here that doesn't know you this morning, I pray that they would confess their sin, that they would repent of their sin, that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for sinners, was buried and rose again so that all through faith in him could receive the free gift of eternal life. That if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Father, may you grant grace to all those who need it, that they might be brought into your family and receive the free gift of God and the grace which is in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.